from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Two offices the chief management officer oversaw will be independent again under a plan from Deputy Defense Secretary David Norquist to close the CMO. The Office of the Director of Administration and Management and the Office of the Assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Intelligence Oversight are the two Norquist has finalized. Defense News reports other CMO functions will find new homes in the next few weeks. A message from the Joint Chiefs of Staff to the entire military force calls the riot at the Capitol a week ago, quote, a direct assault on our constitutional process. All eight members of the Chiefs signed the memo, Chairman General Mark Milley, Vice Chairman General John Hyten, and the Chiefs of the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, Space Force, and National Guard. The letter comes as former members of the military attended the rally and police arrested some for going inside the Capitol building. The Defense Information Systems Agency will take over all of the department's cloud operations. DISA Director Na uh, Vice Admiral Nancy Norton says her agency will absorb the Pentagon's cloud computing program office by the end of this month. GCN reports DISA's had administrative control of the office, but the DOD CIO has had operational control. The outgoing Trump administration's budget proposal for the department in, uh, for fiscal 2021 includes getting rid of the overseas contingency operations budget and moving that money into the regular budget. It's one potential change to thinking about the way the Defense Department budgets. Elaine McCusker is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, former acting Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller, and writing about budget suggestions for the Pentagon in Defense News. Uh, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program, Elaine. You write in this piece, it's time for a responsive and resilient approach to the budget. What does resilient mean in the context of a, of a department's budget? Well, thanks for having me on to talk about this. I think what I mean by resilience is that uh, right now we have very little predictability in the budget. We don't have a budget top line deal. We have a history of more than a decade of continuing resolutions. I think people may not fully appreciate the impact of those continuing resolutions. And we also are operating under a really antiquated budget structure and appropriation structure, in some cases dating back to the fiscal year 1942 budget, which is not reflective to the way that programs are executing today. And so what I'd like to see is us make improvements in a number of these areas to really help the department and the taxpayer harness the, harness the power of its, of its money. So I want to walk through each of those the, the four things that you write about in this piece, and you've touched on a couple of them already. One of them is budget predictability. Is that entirely up to Congress to signal to the department what it's going to get and how it should plan for it? Or is there an element there of the department, too, uh, to, to assist on resilience in budget certainty? I think it's a partnership. I think in the end, Congress holds the power of the purse, so it's up to them to pass uh, annual appropriation bills on time. But it really has to be a partnership with the department and with the administration to make sure that they have the tools necessary to conduct their oversight function and also to finish their job on time. I think that people may not fully realize the impact, both immediate and cumulative, of more than a decade of budget uncertainty. And by this, I mean 
when Congress doesn't pass an appropriations bill by September 30th, they usually pass a continuing resolution, which essentially extends last year's money and priorities into the next year. And so um, DOD has been operating under these types of continuing resolutions for close to 1,300 days in the last 11 years. A lot of people think that once they pass an annual appropriation bill, then that everything's okay. But during that time that you're under a CR, you lose time and money that you can't buy back. For example, if you've got plans for accelerating your capability or modernizing your equipment, let's say you have an opportunity for research or procurement in hypersonics or microelectronics or even procurement of uh, aircraft that are good in the counterterrorism fight. If you're under a continuing resolution, you may not be able to execute any of that for six months. And then as a good planner, you start to realize, well, I'm going to be under continuing resolution. So you don't even plan to execute in the beginning of the year. And so you're losing time and money and competitiveness each year that has a cumulative effect. And so to be blunt, you actually just can't be the best customer or the smartest customer with the best plan with that level of uncertainty. Elaine, the second item that you write about is clarity on federal spending, and you talk about the budget caps uh, being gone and, an and making this an opportunity to look across the entire landscape of the federal budget. In the time that we have left, I want to move to number three and number four. Number three is lessons learned from past budget reductions. What are those lessons, uh, just quickly, that you think people should pay attention to this time around? So I think there's a couple of traps that we've fall, fallen into in the past that has resulted in readiness disasters, a hollow force, and accidents. And a couple of those traps that I think people need to guard against is the temptation to see the world as we'd like it to be rather than how it is. And so we assume away um, a threat level and we pretend that our budget and our, our budget reductions are going to be okay. And we call that the peace dividend. And that's not really what reality reflects. The second way is um, forcing a choice between capability and capacity, and sometimes we call this the drawdown. That has also not worked in the past. So I think we need to be guard against choices that are that simplistic, where you're choosing between the readiness of the force now or the readiness of the force later. I think we can do a better job of opening up our choices so that we don't see some of the impacts we've seen in the past. The last item that you write about is modernizing budget structures, and you put it this way, uh, it's time to modernize with simpler responsive and flexible appropriations that meet congressional oversight requirements. I think that last phrase is the most important one there. Congress, it strikes me in the past, has hesitated to do anything except explicit uh, money giving so that it has complete oversight over where the money goes or where the department wants to move it. I mean, I think right now we're almost operating in the worst of both worlds, where the department produces reams of information, provides you know notifications, and tries to meet all of the requirements that Congress has put on it that are designed to help Congress do its oversight role. And yet we see that Congress is um, repeatedly unsatisfied with what it considers an, an insufficient level of detail for it to do its job. So we're wasting a lot of time and money and effort trying to meet a requirement that is that is not meeting the requirement. And so I think it's time for the Congress and um, DOD, and, and to some extent industry plays a part in this too, to get together and decide how we can um, harness the power of our data, use the, um, the, the things that we're learning from the audit and the way we were, we're able to do more data analytics and update our resourcing strategies to meet both sides' needs. Elaine McCusker, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you here. Great to be here, thank you.
Up next, the new administration and the defense industrial base. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the budget and the people impacts of the new team. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The new administration means potential changes for the defense industrial base. Taking a look at what industry should keep an eye on in the coming months. General Hawk Carlisle, U.S. Air Force retired president and CEO of the National Defense Industrial Association. Hawk, welcome. It's good to see you. It's not just a new administration, although we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, also a new Congress, and your colleague Kay Amatori was on not too long ago talking about what we can expect there. As the names start to fill in in the Biden administration, do you have a sense of what any of that might mean for the defense industrial base, Hawk? Uh, well, thanks. Good morning, Francis. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, I, I got to tell you, I've been very impressed with the names that have come out. I'm, I'm very fortunate. Lloyd Austin and I served together uh, for quite a while in the, in the department. We were at uh, Army War College together for a year. They couldn't stand the irony of not sending Carlisle to Carlisle. So, and, and then we served in the building. He's a he's a great person. I think he's going to get uh, confirmed, and I think he'll be an outstanding Secretary of Defense. And um, Kath Hicks is uh, I've known her for a long time. She's absolutely brilliant. Uh, so I've been impressed with uh, with the the names that have come out of the. Uh, Biden-Harris administration. Um, I will tell you, I think the one thing that uh, industry is looking at is the NDAA did establish a new position as an Assistant Secretary of Defense for Industrial Policy, uh, which is a Senate-confirmed position. And I think seeing the name that comes into that and uh, ANS, uh, Acquisition and Sustainment, are going to be important. Uh, I do think that uh, it would be good if this administration, the incoming administration, picks somebody uh, for those kind of positions that really understands industry, because I think that's really important. Uh, you know, uh, Lloyd's got an incredible background. Uh, Kath has an incredible background, but neither one of them really have business expertise. So I think uh, somebody in those positions with business expertise would be very important. Um, you you took the words right out of my mouth, Hawk, because I, I wanted to ask you, what does the portfolio look like? What does the experience and background look like? for somebody that takes Ellen Lord's job, that takes the uh, um, R&E job and, and those positions that are a level or two down from the Austin or the Hicks nominations? Well, I think, uh, you know, as I said before, I think somebody that understands industry, somebody that has that kind of background is going to be very important. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Ellen Lord. I think she did an uh, absolutely tremendous job as uh, ANS, uh, initially AT&L and then ANS as they split those two out with R&E. Um, so somebody with that kind of background that also has a, a firm understanding of of uh, government work in the department, the you know the government, the Department of Defense is not always the easiest customer to work with. Um, so somebody that can help ease uh, and bring new industry into the fold uh, and see some of those increases is going to be really important. So that's really somebody that understands industry but still has a pretty a firm understanding of how the building works and how the Department of Defense works. To that end of, of continuing to make it easier for the department to do business with uh, new vendors, what should the Biden administration continue that the Trump administration has started or continued from the Obama years? And what should the Biden administration maybe retool or rethink about whether it stays or goes? 
So I think, uh, you know, there's a couple of things there. I think one of the things is the 13806 report of the health of the defense industrial base uh, is incredibly important. And I think they started down that path and they've made some inroads. Uh, there's both a classified and unclassified portion of that uh, executive order 13806. I think they need to continue to examine that. I think they need to see where there's fragility in the industrial base. I think they need to see where supply chains are stressed and where there's security issues. I think the cybersecurity threats uh, highlighted by the SolarWinds hack uh, attributed to Russia is another place that got started. What CMMC looks like, what the new legislation looks like that puts more things in place is going to be another a key component of that as they move forward. And then I think uh, one that's that really hasn't got started, but it's in the new NDAA, and that is uh, microelectronics. I think the United States has got to be the leader in the production, the, the packaging, and the testing of microelectronics. We've, we haven't been, we're, you know, a lot of that comes to the Pacific, and a lot of it comes from China, and that's just not a secure supply chain for us. And it's critical to every single thing we do across the, the entire thing, you know, the entire country. Um, so I think that's one that uh, needs added emphasis. And I think this new administration and this new Congress will look hard at it. And uh, the new NDAA did look at quite a few uh, of the Cyberspace Solarium Commission re uh, recommendations and incorporated many of them, which I think is incredibly important. What's the right role for industry? What's the right role for the department? And what is the right role for collaboration in determining sourcing for things in the supply chain? One example, GSA has taken a whole lot of drones off the schedules uh, within the last several days because it appears that they're being sourced from China, not secure in the supply chain. That's the kind of thing that it strikes me some of our partners, some of the government's partners in industry would be able to decide, well, we're just going to try to start making those here or we're going to look for vendors that make those here, that kind of thing. What does that collaboration look like moving forward, do you think, Hawk? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, you hit the nail on the head. I think it's incredibly important. Uh, secure supply chain all the way down the supply chain, three, four, five tiers down is really important. And we can't be held, um, you know, basically uh, to ransom because we have a foreign supplier that decides they're not going to produce and, and deliver to the United States. So, um, I th and I think it's a combination of uh, onshoring back to the United States. Uh, as well as our closest friends, partners, and allies. There's, we have friends, partners, and allies that we know will always be our friends and uh, and will always be there with us. And so our ability to uh, work with them and uh, and continue to uh, uh, understand what needs to be onshored and how we do that and what it looks like is, uh, is incredibly important. So I think um, the collaboration is going to be one where I think Congress has put uh, some laws in place. This, uh, the new Biden-Harris administration is going to have to look hard at it. 13806 is part of that, is uh, continuing to examine that. And then I think, you know, the, the Defense Department can't survive without industry and the, in, and the defense industrial base can't survive without the Defense Department. So it's a, it's a, it is a collaboration and cooperation to understand what we need to be able to do as a nation to make sure we secure our national security. General, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you back. As always, it's good to see you, Francis. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Have a great afternoon. Up next, getting time and money right on Pentagon IT. Straight ahead on Government Matters, good news and bad news on the department's biggest projects. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back.
Welcome back. Cost estimates are down for 11 of 15 major Pentagon IT programs, but 10 of those programs have schedules sliding the wrong way. Kevin Walsh is Director of Information Technology and Cybersecurity Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Kevin, thanks very much for coming on the program. You're looking at these programs on an ongoing basis as a result of uh, provisions in the National Defense Authorization Act a couple of years ago. What do you look at exactly to make your determinations about which way programs are going in cost and timeline? Sure, so all of these programs set an initial estimate most cases several years uh, ago in terms of what they thought the cost and schedule of these programs was going to be throughout the life of the programs. So to determine the, the cost of these, these in-development programs, we look at where they are now. So it's important to know that these are all estimates. These are not cost overruns that have actually occurred. These are not schedule delays that have actually occurred as well, but they're worrying. What does the, what difference does it make that the estimates change over time? Does it affect the way that the department budgets? Does it affect the way the department executes? What what does it affect one way or the other, Kevin? Sure. So these programs in general are estimated to spend about $34 billion over the life cycle of, of these programs. DOD also spends close to the same amount on an annual basis on IT-specific programs. So this is a lot of taxpayer funding. When programs like this overrun, or are expected to overrun, DOD is forced to take funds from other uh, other sources that may potentially, uh, you know, inhibit the, the warfighter and, and America. So it's very important to keep these things on budget, on cost, on schedule, so that we can meet the needs of the taxpayers and the warfighters. Um, quote from your work, the decreases in cost estimates range from a 0.03% decrease to a 33.8% decrease. Are there common threads among those programs where the cost estimates are going down that indicate the reasons that they go down? So we saw several reasons, and this, this is a familiar theme in, in government IT development, uh, changing requirements as well as uh, testing delays were, were amongst the most commonly cited reasons. However, uh, one of the most interesting things that I found was that the of the 15 programs, 11, you're correct, had experienced some form of cost decrease, estimated cost decrease. But the four that had an estimated cost increase had actually outweighed the decrease. So uh, DOD estimated that they were going to uh, have decreases to the tune of $1.6 billion, but the estimated increases were to the tune of $2.6 billion. So those four really had serious, serious overruns yeah, estimated. The, the net doesn't sound like that's coming out the way that we wanted to. Um, you also write about the timeline sliding. I alluded to that at the beginning of the conversation. What did you find there, and what were the reasons that you found that the timelines are sliding on so many of these programs? Sure. So uh, the timeline reasons, uh, the reasons for the timeline shifts are similar to, to the cost shifts, changing requirements, testing delays, and the like. Uh, however, of the 15 we looked at, 10 had experienced some form of schedule estimated schedule delay. Uh, five to the tune of months, the remaining five years or more. In the worst case, five years. So this is, this is not what we want to see happening in our IT development. One of the challenges that I saw here, it, it, this jumped out at me as far as the execution of these programs, Kevin. We've been talking in government for 10 years now about the need to get away from waterfall delivery on programs and do more iterative delivery. You're writing programs also reported using waterfall to in, that could introduce risk for program cost growth 
and you explain the reasons why. Did you get any input as to why organizations inside the department are still taking a waterfall approach a decade or so after we determined it probably wasn't a good idea? You're, you're absolutely correct, Francis. This is something that we've been trying to shift to for years. Congress, in its Fatara legislation, uh, really, really in, reinforced incremental development. OMB has reiterated that agencies should be developing with the aim to produce a usable piece of software in the six months to one year time frame. So it's, it's disappointing that more programs haven't fully shifted to it. But of the 15, 14 were using incremental or iterative at, at least to some degree. There were two of the 14 that had waterfall as well, which is the older, slower, longer duration time frame that we'd like to see less of. The last one, uh, I can't speculate as to the specific reasons why, but um, we, we, we will be looking at this, as you noted very early on in this, that we will be looking at this over and over again. This is an annual report that we expect to, to be doing several times. And That's I think those programs that use some waterfall and some iterative were, uh, uh, were a little bit more puzzling to me than some one that goes one way or the other. I, I'm not sure I, I understood how one mixes the two approaches in the same program. Right, and perhaps that there are, there are existing contracts that the agency is trying to move away from, but uh, that's not something that we looked at today. Kevin, we have about 30 seconds left. You mentioned you're going to continue to look at these. What specifically uh, will you continue to look at? Same issues in, in, in the out years? So we are going to be looking at not the same batch of programs, but we're going to be looking at similar profiles. Uh, Francis, one final note for you as well. We found that agencies, well, we found that programs that had conducted cybersecurity vulnerability assessments had also experienced fewer cost overruns and fewer scheduled delays than the ones that hadn't. So that was an interesting tie between thinking about cyber early and often, which is perhaps more important in solar winds or given the solar winds news. Kevin, thanks very much. I appreciate your time. Have a good day. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every program by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.